Well, good morning, Parkview. We are so glad that you're here. Can you thank uh, Matt for being here with us this again this morning? We are so glad that you're here. Uh, if you are a guest with us this morning, my name is uh, Dave Davis. I'm one of the pastors. Our pastor, Ray, is uh, experiencing some much-needed and much-deserved vacation uh, right now. But, um, but if you are a guest, we are glad that you're here. And our hope is that someone made you feel welcome, and that you would connect relationally with someone sitting by you, uh, and that you'd come back and visit with us again. And the one thing that we ask each and every week is if you are a guest, if you wouldn't mind just taking a moment and attached to the bulletin you were given when you came in is a little card, a little tear-off card. If you'd do us a favor and just fill that out, give us a little information about yourself. I promise nothing weird's going to happen. We just really want to get to know you. That is uh, your best way to engage with us, and it's our best way to engage with you. So take a moment and fill that out. In a few minutes, an offering basket's going to come by. Uh, you can just drop it in there. If you need a little extra time, you can take it to the info desk on your way out. There's a couple of things that I want to uh, draw your attention to. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about uh, a series that we're going to be launching in the fall on, on know, knowing uh, the will of God uh, for your life. And so I, uh, we've been talking about the fact that we want to rally the church around this series and have a whole bunch of life groups begin for six weeks. And so Ray's been asking you to open up your hearts and your lives and consider hosting. Uh, well, he didn't trust me to ask that of you again this week while he's on vacation. So he recorded a message from a remote location where he is <laughs> on his vacation. Hey, Parkview, I'm coming to you from the Arctic, doing a little vacation time here. And I just wanted to remind you that we have this uh, Seeking to Know series coming up starting August 24th, all about understanding God's will. And uh, we're looking for more and more people to open their homes and host a six-week life group. Uh, we're planning a, a brief orientation for our hosts. We'll provide coaches along with easy-to-use study material that draws from Sunday morning teaching. So uh, if you're willing to host a six-week group, just take one of these cards you'll find in the bulletin, fill it out, place it in an, off in an offering basket, drop it off uh, uh, on your way out or, or whatever, but someone will get back to you as soon as possible. Listen, hosting a group may be something completely new to you and maybe push you out of your comfort zone, but that's a good thing. Look at me. I'm way out of my comfort zone here. So I'm excited to see what God's going to do this fall. I look forward to getting back. I'll see you soon. <laughs> Now you can clap for that. The best part of that thing, that's his actual winter jacket. He walks around the office with it. He looks like the old man from Home Alone shoveling snow. But seriously, we would love for you to um, have the opportunity, the incredible opportunity to open up uh, your life and your, and your home to, to host one of these groups. It, it, it doesn't require much other than the willingness to serve the people that show up. And uh, we're going to take really good care of you. We're going to equip you. We're going to position you for success. So take advantage of that card. Drop it off at the info desk if you need some more time. Or reach out to us at the office if you have some questions. And then the last thing I want to mention to you is uh, each and every year we engage in a school supply drive for the schools that we partner with in the Villa Park community. Uh, this year you have already begun to bring in your resources and your supplies, and we're grateful for it. But we encourage you to do that. 
your sacrificial giving in this way really does help and make a difference in some kids' lives and some teachers' lives. So, so if, you, uh, if you've brought stuff, there's a place out there in the lobby for you to drop it off. But, uh, and if you go to our website, if you're interested in what maybe our needs are, on our website is a big list of things that, that we'd love for you to, to bring and join us with in participating with this uh, campaign. So um, before I have the uh, ushers come forward and pray for our offering this morning, uh, as you know, if you've been around for a couple of weeks, we're in a series called Influence. And the idea behind the series was to bring in a bunch of, of speakers, a bunch of people who have influenced us personally or as a congregation, as a church. We started out with a friend of ours, uh, Brian Chapman, who gave a powerful message that has influenced us as an organization. And last week you heard from uh, Matt Barnhill, who gave a very powerful message on forgiveness, one that has been influencing my life for 15 years. And today we have another incredible uh, blessing for us. It's a guy by the name of Sky Jathani, and he's a dad, he's a husband, he's a pastor, uh, he's an editor at Leadership Journal, uh, but he's also a writer. And his writings have influenced Ray and myself and part of, and, and the way uh, Parkview is, is, is structured. And in particular, he wrote a book called With. And in this book, he talks about ways in which we can live our life. And, and, and it has influenced the way we think. And there's a, there's a quote that I want to read to you. And in the first service, I started to read it out of the book and realized that I have brand new glasses. And my doctor doesn't know what he's doing because I couldn't read what's on the thing. And Sky had to come up and help me. So they put it on the screen so that I could read it to you. The reason a great many churches and Christian ministries fail to see people obey Jesus' instructions is because the people are not living in the life with God posture. The teachings and commands of the Bible may be communicated powerfully, clearly, and repeatedly. But until people have their vision of the world changed by living in communion with the Good Shepherd, until they experientially know they are safe, they will be incapable of following Christ's counterintuitive commands. And that's what Sky is going to talk about this morning. And that has influenced us as a church in a very significant way. And I think you'll understand why when he's done. So I'm going to have the ushers come forward. We're going to pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we recognize that we are loved by you. We're grateful for that fact. We're grateful that you love us the same today as you did yesterday and as you will tomorrow. That there's nothing we can do that will love you, make you love us any more than, we do right, than you do right now. And so God, as we are challenged this morning from your word, we ask that you would show us, reveal to us a new way to see. And God, as we continue in an attitude of worship, as we give back to you out of what you have already given to us, we ask, God, that you would use it in powerful ways to change the people of this community. But even more importantly, you would use it to change those that are outside the walls of this building. You would make a difference through our giving. And God, ultimately, you use it to change us. As we give away that which is precious to us, you enable us to see the world in a different way. So God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Will you welcome Sky to the stage? Thank you. Uh, I want to begin a little bit differently, and that is by singing, although I can't sing. So I need you to do the singing. Uh, I'd like us to just sing the chorus of Amazing Grace. I assume most of you know that song, and I need somebody who'd be willing to lead us out.
Great. Thank you. That was beautiful. It's the last line that always strikes me. I was blind, but now I see. What does it mean? It's nice poetry. Perhaps it's a metaphor for conversion, not seeing God in my life, but now seeing him. Throughout the Bible, the idea of blindness and sight is used again and again and again. And the more I've studied it, the more I thought it's more than just a metaphor. There's actually something literal going on here. And I should just hang on to that. We'll come back to it later. Let's go to Calcutta, India. In the community where Mother Teresa served, it was their custom every morning to take an ambulance to the train station where people would be abandoned by their families overnight because they were too sick to be cared for by them anymore. And they would collect those people in the ambulance and bring them back to the hospital. One morning they found a guy in really bad condition. He was very close to death. He had open wounds all over his body, maggots literally eating his flesh. When they brought him back to the hospital, Mother Teresa claimed him for herself. And she spent all morning by his bedside, cleaning his wounds, trying to make him comfortable and cool and praying by his bedside. Toward the end, he very briefly opened up his eyes and said, thank you. And then he died. Later that day, she gathered with the other nuns. And with a radiant smile on her face, Mother Teresa said to them, that this morning I had the privilege of caring for the dying Christ. An allusion to Matthew 25, where Jesus says, that which you do unto the least of these you've done unto me. Mother Teresa was one of the most influential figures of the 20th century. She influenced Catholics and Protestants, believers, non-believers, presidents and popes. Why? She had no great position of influence, not over some state or organization, no massive amount of intellectual credibility or education, certainly no wealth or money, no worldly power. So how do you account for her influence, the stature that she acquired in people's eyes and the way she inspired so many? I want to suggest to you that what made her so influential was not what she said, and it wasn't even really what she did in the world as beautiful and good as it was. But what truly made her influential was how she saw the world. Where others would see just a dying beggar at a train station, she saw the face of her Savior. Where others would see worthless street children, she saw the children of God. Where others would be impressed with a president, she saw a man in need of God's grace like any other. You see, Mother Teresa's vision of the world preceded her actions and informed her actions within it. It's how she saw the world that made all the difference. And that's really what I want to talk about today. See, so many of Jesus' miracles and his parables, his teachings, were designed to open the eyes of his disciples to see a different world. When you look at the Gospels, Jesus doesn't spend that much time giving them specific tactics or procedures of how to do their their work. He spends almost all of his energy getting them to open their eyes to see things differently, knowing that if they see the world the way he sees it, they will act differently within it. So he wanted them to see a world in which it made perfect sense for the first to be last and the last to be first. He wanted them to see a world in which the widow who puts a penny into the offering is actually giving more than everyone else. He wanted them to see a world in which the rejected, the forgotten, the sick, the poor, that they were actually exalted in the eyes of our God. 
You wanted them to see a world in which the greatest in the kingdom was a little child. He wanted them to see a world in which the great are the servants rather than the kings. And he wanted them to see a world in which even a rejected and crucified Messiah is exalted over all. But the disciples didn't see this world very frequently. They didn't have their eyes open. And so Jesus very often would quote Isaiah and he would rebuke his own disciples saying, you have eyes, but you still do not see. And I wonder if he could say the same to us, the church in the West. We are the most resourced Christians who have ever lived in the history of the world. We have more wealth, more resources, more Bibles, more books, more conferences, more radio stations, more magazines, more churches, more colleges and universities than any Christians who have ever lived in the history of mankind. And yet, by any measure, the influence of Christianity in the West is declining. How do we explain that? It's not a lack of resources. It's not a lack of strategies. I don't even think it's a lack of motivation. I think it's a lack of vision. The fact that we do not see the world that Jesus sees and therefore we do not act in this world the way Jesus would act. We have eyes, but we still do not see. So I want to look at a passage from Matthew 26 that highlights two different ways to see the world, which leads to two different ways of acting in the world. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 26. This is a story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night in which he's betrayed. He's completed his earthly ministry. He's had the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room, and then he takes them out into this olive grove, knowing what awaits him, the cross, Betrayal, crucifixion, humiliation. I'm going to begin reading in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you've come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? Now in this story, there's two characters I want us to focus on. Obviously Jesus, and then this disciple who cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And we know from another gospel account that the disciple who did this was Peter. What's so interesting is that both Jesus and Peter are experiencing the exact same scenario. This terrible moment in the middle of the night in this olive grove when this crowd of soldiers with chains and swords and clubs are coming to seize them and likely kill them. In another gospel account, this moment is referred to as the hour when darkness reigns. But Jesus and Peter respond completely differently to the same situation. Jesus responds peacefully. Peter responds violently. 
Jesus responds faithfully. Peter responds fearfully. So what accounts for their very different responses to the exact same situation? I think it can be attributed to the fact that they see two very different worlds unfolding in front of them. Let's begin with Peter, because he's the one most of us are going to identify with. Peter looks at this situation, and he, th- he sees a dangerous and threatening world. A place in which he is in great danger, where his life is at risk. And if you've taken Biology 101, you know that when an organism feels threatened, it responds in one of two ways, right? What are they? Fight or flight. And you see Peter doing both of them here. First he fights. He gets his sword out and he tries to attack the soldiers that are there. And being a fisherman rather than a soldier, he doesn't do very well. Right? All he manages to do is cut off a guy's ear. So knowing that he's not going to overcome the situation by fighting, Peter and the rest of the disciples then flee. They run for it. They abandon Jesus and they head for the hills. Fight it or flight. But what I want you to notice is that both of those responses are really two manifestations of the same instinct. And that is, when we see danger, when we are threatened, we all become afraid. And in our fear, we try to gain control to mitigate our fears. First, we try to gain control by attacking the situation, by forcefully asserting ourselves over it and mitigating the danger. And when that doesn't happen, many of us find control by running away from the situation, by extracting ourselves from the threat putting distance between ourselves and the thing that is dangerous. But both of them are a means of control. And this pretty much summarizes all of human history. Dangerous, threatening world in which we are afraid and in our fear we seek control. But here's the downside. The more we seek control over the world, the more dangerous it becomes. You know that more wars have been fought over one natural resource than any other in human history. You know what it is? Water. In order for me and my group to have enough water, because it's a dangerous world in which there's a scarcity of resources and we're afraid of not having it, we're going to try to control the water source. And to do that, we have to keep you away from it. And so a battle ensues in which the world becomes more dangerous and around and around the cycle goes. The same thing applies to our personal lives. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. So we try to mitigate the fear by seeking control. If I'm just educated enough then I can overcome the uncertainties of the future. If I just read up enough on this situation, then I can overcome it. If I just study hard enough, if I just accumulate enough wealth, money, I can insulate myself from the scarcities and dangers of this world. And we lull ourselves into the complacency or the belief that we actually have control over the markets, over the economy, over this bubble or that bubble. Sometimes it's our personal health. If I just strengthen my body enough, if I exercise enough, if I eat right, if I do all the things my doctor tells me to do, then I'll be healthy and I can be safe from all the dangers and viruses and possible illnesses that are out there. We carry this into our personal relationships. I don't know what's going to happen with my spouse, with my marriage, with my children. If I just control them enough, if I can make them behave a certain way, do certain things, if I listen to that radio program or read this book and do that, then I'll control my life, I'll control my family, and everything will be okay. But the more we try to control, the more we try to gain power over things, the more they slip through our fingers, the more dangerous the world becomes. Now here's the leap I want you to make. It isn't just about danger, fear, and control in history or our personal lives. All human religion 
is a system of control that's predicated on fear. Think about it. If you see this world as a dangerous and threatening place, what better way to gain control over the world than to control the God or the gods who made it? That's essentially all religion is. It's a human system of control predicated on fear. Now, before explaining how that manifests itself in our communities, let's give you an example that's completely removed from our scenario. So my father is from India, and I've been back there numerous times. My mother Scandinavian, so I'm kind of a mess. I like my Ikea meatballs with curry, right? It's one of those things. <laughs> but when I was 19 years old, I was back in India for my cousin's wedding. And I was staying with my aunt and uncle in Mumbai. And very early one morning, I was awoken because my uncle burst into the bedroom and startled me awake. And I looked at him, and he's walking very slowly into the bedroom because he's balancing a big silver dish on his head. And in the dish, from what I could tell, was water. So he was having to balance this thing very carefully. And flowers were floating in the water, and there was a coconut in there, and the coconut was on fire. <laughs> Kid you not. It's like, where's the white rabbit? What did I eat last night? It was just, it was like I was hallucinating. That was not the strangest part of the scene, however. Because around my uncle were a bunch of women, very colorfully dressed in Indian saris, who were dancing and singing, and they were beating drums and bells and chimes and all that, and they were dancing all around my bedroom, And then, as my eyes began to come into focus, I realized that these are the ugliest women I'd ever seen. <laughs> Because it turns out they weren't women. It was like a Daisy drag parade in there. It, was, it turns out they were eunuchs. I'd never met a eunuch. I'm guessing most of you have not either. So to inform you, a eunuch is a boy who was castrated when he was young and so never really develops into a man. And in certain forms of Hinduism, it was believed that eunuchs being genderless are closer to the divine. And so bands of eunuchs would roam around the streets looking for households celebrating some significant passage, a birth of a child or a wedding. So they had found out that my cousin was getting married. They knocked on the door of the home that morning and they wanted to perform religious ceremonies throughout the house to bless the marriage. And my uncle being the head of the household became the central actor in all these pujas or these prayer ceremonies, and that's why they were blessing my bedroom, apparently, first thing in the morning. They eventually left my room and went into the other rooms of the house so I could get up and get dressed and find out what on earth was happening. And eventually, they finished up all the ceremonies, and they were all congregated near the front door of the house, where my uncle got into this really nasty, heated argument with these eunuchs, which was incredibly entertaining to watch. But I don't speak Hindi. I didn't know what was going on, so I had to ask one of the household servants, you know, what's happening here? And he explained to me, well, they're haggling over the price. Like, price for what? And he explained to me, well, that's how these eunuchs make their living, is they go around and they do these ceremonies in homes, and then they expect to be paid for it. And if you don't give them enough money, then they threaten to curse the home or the marriage or the birth or whatever is going on rather than bless it. So that's what they were haggling about, was how much the blessing was going to cost. And eventually, they left happily, so I'm guessing that my uncle paid them what they wanted, And out they went. Now, you might assume from that story that my uncle was a, a country bumpkin, really backwards, uneducated, superstitious kind of person. In reality, he was a, a very successful businessman with international businesses in Japan, Hong Kong, New York, the Middle East. And here he is arguing with a bunch of cross-dressing eunuchs about how much money it costs to get the gods to bless his son's marriage. Why? 
danger, fear, and control. Entering into marriage is, an, is a dangerous proposition. You don't know what the future will hold. And in that fear, we seek control. And at least in that culture at that time, control came by getting the God's blessings by bribing eunuchs, apparently. So he did. Now, we can be thousands of miles removed from that and go, oh, how ridiculous, how silly, isn't that awful? Is your relationship with God really that different? How many of us view this world as a dangerous place? Scared for our future, scared for our health, scared for our family, scared for our children. And so we negotiate with God. If I just go to church more often, then God will bless me. He'll protect me. If I just give more money, if I serve more frequently, if I keep my morality within certain boundaries, my sexuality within certain mores, if I say these prayers, if I do these things, if I live by these principles, if I read the scriptures this often, if I be part of that ministry, if I listen to that person on the radio, then God will be pleased with me and he will protect me. He will bless me. He will affirm me. And I don't have to be afraid. It's no different than the way many Hindus practice their faith or Muslims practice theirs or countless other forms of human religion. When we view the world as a dangerous and threatening place, we use God as a means of mitigating our fears by trying to control him. Now, here's the other problem. If that's how we view the world, we will find it impossible to obey the commands of Jesus. Think about it. Love my enemy? Why on earth would I love my enemy if they're just going to wrong me and hurt me and I want to protect myself? Give to those who ask of you? I can't give away my resources. There's not enough in this world. There's a scarcity. I need to hoard it and protect it and insulate myself with it. Walk the second mile with the one who forces you to walk one already? Why would I do that? That's not good for me. That's not going to protect me. That's not going to insulate me from the dangers and threats in this world. Bless those who curse me? I don't want to bless them. I want them out of here. I want them dealt with because I need to protect myself. It's dangerous out there. You cannot even begin to understand the teachings of Jesus, let alone practice them, if you believe that this is a dangerous and threatening world. At the very most, what you'll do is twist the teachings of Jesus to somehow be practical advice in a dangerous and threatening world to insulate yourself from the very things that God is calling you to do. And we wonder why our culture is losing Christian influence when so much of the church in the West is paralyzed in a posture of, of fear and self-preservation. Peter used the sword to attack a soldier. We use political power, cultural influence, economic might to fight against this world that we are threatened by. And all we end up doing is communicating to those outside a relationship with Christ, that the church is an angry, dangerous, and threatening place for them and for us. And there are many leaders who will claim the name of Christ, both in the church, in the culture, and in politics, who will try to motivate you and mobilize you by making you afraid. They are not leading you by the Spirit of Christ, because where the Spirit of God is present, fear cannot long endure. What's the alternative? What is the other way to see this world? Jesus reveals it to us in Matthew 26. 
When Judas comes, he doesn't fight. He doesn't run. He doesn't try to gain control over the situation. He just says, do what you've come to do. He surrenders. And then when Peter strikes the servant and cuts off his ear, first Jesus turns to Peter and says, no. This is not how it is to be with my people. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He rebukes that kind of fighting for control. But then he goes a step further. Jesus kneels down and picks up that severed ear and he heals the man who has come to kill him. He loves his enemy. How can he do that? How does he find the freedom from fear to bless and love the person who hates him? It's revealed in verse 53. Do you not think I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Jesus sees something different going on that night. Yes, he sees the soldiers and he sees the injustice. He's the one who calls it the hour when darkness reigns. He gets it. He recognizes this is evil and wrong and unjust. But behind that, at a deeper level, as Lewis would say, there's a deeper magic to the world and Jesus sees it. He recognizes what Peter didn't see, that this is a God with us world. And everything that was unfolding that night was happening according to his father's plan. Jesus knows that not a sparrow falls to the ground without our heavenly father knowing. And that all the evil and injustice that was happening that night was part of a larger plan. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus endures the shame of the cross. He endures this humiliation in the garden. This rejection by his own disciples. He endures it all because of the joy that is set before him. He knows that on the other side of the cross is coming the resurrection. He knows that his father will not abandon him to the grave. He knows that he will be exalted and given the name above all names. Jesus sees that this is a God with us world in which he does not have to be afraid. And set free from fear, he doesn't have to cling for control. He doesn't have to fight. He doesn't have to curse. He doesn't have to run. In fact, he is set so free from fear that he can actually love his enemy and bless the one who has come to harm him. You see, Jesus understands what Paul reveals to us in Romans. That this is a God with us world in which nothing, neither heights nor depths, neither angels nor demons, not even life or death, Death can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can separate us from God. And if that is true, then this is a perfectly safe world for you and I to live in. Not even death can take us away from our God. Who then shall we fear? And if we do not have fear, we have just become the most dangerous people on the planet. Because it means we don't have to fight, we don't have to flee. We don't have to attack. We don't have to control. We are set free to love, to give, to surrender, to bless, to forgive, 
all the things that Jesus calls us to in his kingdom. In 1955, Martin Luther King Jr. was a 26-year-old minister in Montgomery, Alabama. That was when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus and started the Montgomery bus boycott. Now, the other ministers in town knew that it was a suicide mission to be caught leading that bus boycott, but King was too young and naive to realize that, so they manipulated things in order to put him in charge. And on the night of January 27th, 1956, he got a phone call in the middle of the night. The voice on the other end of the line told him, with some colorful language, that if he and his family were not out of town within three days, they would all be dead. Now, if you're a black minister in 1956 in the South leading a bus boycott, that is not an idle threat. And King knew it. He hung up the phone, but he said that he couldn't go back to sleep. So he poured himself a cup of coffee in his kitchen, and he sat down at the table and buried his face into his hands. And he said that he was absolutely paralyzed by fear. He was thinking about his young wife and his infant daughter in the bedroom next to the kitchen, wondering how he was going to get them all out of town, how he was going to protect himself, and how he was going to do it without losing his reputation by saving face. When we become afraid, it draws us inward in a contracted posture where we can only think about ourselves, where we hoard our resources, our energies, our our strength. We become narcissistic, self-centered. That's where King was that night over his cup of coffee. Absolutely paralyzed. But he said he heard a second voice that night, not over the phone, an inner voice that accosted him in his kitchen. This is what the voice said to him. He recounted this in a sermon years later. The voice said, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you, even until the end of the world. King went on to say, the voice promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. He promised to never leave me, never, never to leave me alone. King experienced the presence of Christ in his life that night in a way that he had never experienced before. And he said that at that moment, his fear was absolutely gone. He said that I knew at that moment I could stand up without fear and I could face anything. Anything. Now what's so fascinating to me is King was an incredibly intelligent man, very highly educated, theologically brilliant He knew the Bible backwards and forwards. And he was the son of a minister, raised in the church, knew it all, experienced it all, done it all. And yet for the first time in his life, he had encountered Jesus so intimately, so powerfully that it utterly transformed his vision of the world. He no longer saw a dangerous and threatening world. He saw a God with us world in which he was perfectly safe. And so he could stand up for truth and for justice and for righteousness, knowing that his God would never, ever, ever leave him. Well, his new vision of the world was going to be tested three nights later. 
He was at his church for a rally around the bus boycott when someone barged into the back of the sanctuary and shouted that King's Parsonage right down the road had been firebombed, the little house where his wife and infant daughter were. The entire congregation ran out the church, down the street, including King, and they found his house on fire. Thankfully, his wife and his daughter were able to get out safely. They were unharmed, and once King got them out of there, he realized that the bigger danger was still in front of him. Because around his house had gathered an enormous mob of angry black citizens from Montgomery who were armed with baseball bats and rifles and guns. They were ready to riot because of this attack on their leader's home. And King did something remarkable. He stood up on the porch of his still-burning house and he addressed the crowd. And this is what he said to them. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. But I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them and let them know that you love them. For we are doing what is right. We are doing what is just. And God is with us. When they heard that, the crowd dropped their weapons They held hands together and they began to sing a song. You know which one? Amazing Grace. Through King's words, they began to see a different world. Their eyes were opened to a God with us world in which they didn't have to fight, they didn't have to strive for control, neither did they have to run away and hide. They were set free to love rather than hate, to forgive rather than resent, to bless rather than curse. One of the white police officers who was there that night said that if it hadn't been for that black preacher, we would have all been dead. Historians look back at that night in Montgomery as the turning point in the civil rights movement in the United States, the point at which the teachings of Jesus, love for one's enemy, Nonviolent resistance came to lead the movement and transform our entire culture. But the historians are wrong. That night was not the turning point. The turning point was three nights earlier when King was alone in his kitchen, paralyzed by fear, and the Spirit of God was poured out on him so powerfully that his eyes were open to see the world differently when he saw a God-with-us world. What world do you see? Are you trapped in fear and control, striving to protect yourself, your family, your resources, your ideas, your values, your community? Or have you been set free to bless, to forgive, to walk the second mile, to give of those who ask of you. And do you realize that in that freedom, we can face anything? We can face a Roman cross or an assassin's bullet knowing that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. That is who we are called to be as the church. And until we are that church, 
the kingdom of God will continue to diminish in the West because the kingdom of God is not established by fear and control, but by faith and love and hope. And that is what Christ has come to bring this world. How does it happen? How do we have our eyes open to see a different world? It happens exactly the way the song says. By God's amazing grace. There is no book. There is no program. There are no three easy steps. It happens when, like King, we come to the end of ourselves. When our hands are buried in our face And we realize that all of our wealth, all of our churches, all of our resources, all of our books, all of our conferences, all of our colleges and universities and radio stations, all of it is meaningless without the Spirit of God. It happens when we surrender all that we are and confess to God our fears and our inadequacies and invite him by his Spirit to so fill us that his grace opens our eyes to recognize the truth that we are perfectly safe in this world because it is his world. And nothing will separate us from him. We are free to love and bless and even give up our lives. When we see that world, when we experience that grace, then we can truly sing as the church that we once were blind, but now we see. Let's pray. Holy Father, we pray to confess our frailty, our blindness, our inadequacies. We are dust, and yet so often we fool ourselves into believing that we have more control and power than we do. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us our attempts at control, manipulation, and that you would meet us in our emptiness. No doubt there are some here this morning who feel that they are living through the hour when darkness reigns. By your grace, Lord, give them eyes to see that you are still with them. For the rest of us, Lord, who have been fooled into thinking we have control, by your grace, show us the truth. Lord, I pray that you would shepherd us kindly and gently, aware of our frailty. And through us, Lord, as your people, may you show this blind world the truth, the light, the presence of your kingdom. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Every day, every moment today, you and I have the opportunity to see our world, our co-workers, our neighbors, our jobs, our schools, our checkbook, from a place of fear, a place of control. Or we can view all those things through the eyes of Jesus. Perspective of grace and love. If 
we do that as a church, as people, talk about influence. Talk about a difference that that can make in the world. So I encourage you to take Sky's words to heart. In a few minutes as we dismiss, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for your strength. I'm going to pray for courage. We've got a young man on the stage who has been battling some health issues. And he's back with us for the first time in a number of weeks. This is Scott Carrere. And uh, I'm going to pray for him, for his family uh, as well. So will you bow with me and let's pray together. Father, we are grateful again for your love for us. And as your church leaves the building today and has the unique ability to impact the world, let us do that from a place of vision. We see the world through your eyes. Lord, I'm so grateful for Scott and for the work, the healing power that you're doing in his life. And The road is not over, but we're praying for continued strength and courage. We're praying for continued healing. Pray for his family, for his wife, for his kids. So God, as we leave this place today, remind us of your love each and every moment of the day. Use that to give us the courage to live a life of impact and influence. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, have a great week. There's people down here that would love to pray with you if you'd like to have somebody pray with you.